Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening, and Happy New Year. Today is January 2nd, 2023, and this is the first episode of the fourth season of the Organic Wine Podcast. This podcast has been a life-changing journey for me, and I just want to say how grateful I am to everyone who has spent an hour or more talking with me in order to share their knowledge and experience, and a huge thank you to everyone who has listened and supported this podcast. I hope it has been a life-changing experience for you as well. In the past, I wanted this podcast to use the vehicle of wine to inspire hope. That desire has changed a bit because I think hope can be an excuse to wait around for somebody else to do something. My new goals for this podcast are to use wine to inspire you with the wonder of nature, to ignite your imagination, to think of new solutions to our problems, and to motivate you to think ecologically as you act and make decisions about how you will grow and make wine, or just how you will live. Wine has led me personally to reconnect with the natural world in a much deeper way than I ever imagined. My mind is continually blown by the incredible richness, diversity, and beauty of our world, and how little we actually understand it. I've come to see wine as this magical product of human culture that illuminates just how bound we are to the unfathomably complex natural systems of this earth and to each other. I'm humbled and grateful for the opportunity to be part of this cosmic moment. For this episode, I got to interview a real-life superhero, the Batman. Dr. Dave Johnston is an adjunct associate wildlife ecologist and bat biologist at H.T. Harvey & Associates. Dave is a vertebrate ecologist who specializes in the foraging ecology and conservation biology of bats. He has studied bats for over 30 years, and for the past 15 years, he has focused on renewable energy and transportation projects in California and Hawaii. He also has ongoing research projects involving the foraging ecology of bats in California, Mexico, Belize, and more recently in Costa Rica, where he currently resides and where he was for this interview. Dr. Johnston is a hobby winemaker who started making wine as a student at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Dr. Johnston describes many of the ways bats are vital to our ecology generally and to wine production specifically. As he explains how unique and diverse bats are, I think you'll find yourself falling in love with bats, not only because of their importance to the ecology of wine, but because they're such amazing creatures that we mostly overlook. In addition to learning about some of the threats to bats, including pesticides and wind turbines, we learn how to attract bats to our vineyards and orchards, which we definitely want to do, and we learn what kinds of bats eat leafhoppers and vineyard moths and Japanese beetles and more. And you're going to hear some fascinating things about the altruism of vampire bats, scorpion-eating bats, and flowers that evolved as night-blooming satellite dishes for echolocating bats to pollinate them. This is some really amazing and cool stuff. Join me on this nocturnal expedition to find out who is tending your vines while you sleep. Enjoy. One final important note, Dave is working on an effort to get a state bat named for the state of California. They've reached a sort of impasse and could use the help and influence and support of grape growers, winemakers with influence, especially in that, you know, sort of Northern California, Napa, Sonoma area, but really anywhere. If you have influence and would like to see a state bat named for the state of California, please reach out to Dave. This effort is really important to showing the importance of 
fats in our ecology, especially in an agricultural state such as California, where so much of our economy comes from agriculture, fats are hugely important. And this is a, a fantastic project to bring awareness to that. Dave's email is djohnston at harveyecology.com. That is D-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N at Harvey, H-A-R-V-E-Y, ecology, E-C-O-L-O-G-Y.com. Please reach out to Dave. Let him know that you can support in whatever way. Maybe have some pool with some politicians or just influence over with your your social media, your own sphere of influence that you can help spread the word about this effort to get a state bat named. And also feel free to reach out to Dave with questions about bats and how bats can benefit your world. All right. Thanks. Uh, Dave, welcome. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, my pleasure, Adam. It's, it's, uh, it's nice to be uh, asked a few questions about bats. Hey! And, uh, oh, you, you're 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 jumping the gun. I was gonna build to that, but I <laughs> no, that's great. I can you also talk about where you are in the world right now and what's happening? I am in there? yeah. I am in Monteverde, Costa Rica, and my family and I decided to uh, spend a year abroad. Uh, one so that our 14 year old could just see how other people in the world live and learn a new language for him. Me too, by the way. Yeah. And then also I'm a bat biologist and there are a few bat biologists here in Costa Rica that I will be collaborating with. Fantastic. So it's really exciting on, you know, a number of fronts, both for my family and then also professionally. Is there a specific project that you're working on with bats there in Costa Rica? Or is it, yeah. Um, there, there are actually several. Okay, um, got it. But, but one is to look at a bat that is, is quite large as, as our bats go. Um, it's about, um, well, about 60 grams. But it's, uh, it only occurs along the tops of these uh, mountain ridges. And it doesn't, it doesn't get too far in lower in elevation. Uh -huh. And I'm wondering um, how it deals with this, you know, cooler habitat. It's kind of, I won't say displaced, but it occurs where another very common bat that eats fruit uh, normally occurs. So um, this, this is the scientific name of this bat is called um, Platyrhinus vitatus, but it occurs along the Cordillerian, that is the mountain ridges from Costa Rica and a little north uh, down to Colombia. And so as the earth warms and we, we go through global warming, mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering, you know, how this bat will respond. And so we've got a number of hypotheses why it occurs here and its um, ecological equivalent does not. And it may be because it can go into torpor. That's kind of like hibernation. Um, but what's going to happen as this whole area gets warmer? I just looked at the last 40 years of rain data. And unlike California, uh, there is a trend for increasing rain. And on a single night in a national park just north of here, we got 82 centimeters of rain overnight. 
and wow. it, they've had the rainiest um, fall they have ever had in record here. Wow. Can and they normally into... get over 100 inches of rain a year, but this year is going to be way more than that. <laughs> wow. Um, 32 oh, inches? That's 30. Yeah, about, eight... figure about a yard of uh, about three of feet rain. of water. In a night? Not, not quite. Let's say two and a half feet of water uh, in a 12-hour period. That's insane. Wow. Yeah, that was insane. We drove <laughs> our four-tuner Toyota truck it's it's a it's a suv but a really hefty one with a truck chassis we drove it i'm not kidding in about three feet of water and wow. and that road was um 10.6 mile uh, 10.6 kilometers long and i honestly did not think we were going to make it but in fact we did <laughs> wow. wow that's amazing well let's Let's step back. I mean, this is really exciting. I'd love to, <laughs> I could talk to you just about what you're doing there and, and what it's like living there. But, um, you know, the, the reason I wanted to talk to you was I stumbled on these articles online about how important bats were to the ecology of growing fruit, but specifically grapes and vineyards and, and the, the use of them or not even the use of them, but their importance to, pest control, especially some of the pests that might bring in diseases that to, to vines, like the glassy wing sharpshooter and Pierce's disease and things like that. And how, you know, people are encouraging the, the uh, population of bats to, to stay around the vineyards, to increase around their vineyards specifically for this purpose, to decrease these, uh, insect populations that might otherwise be out of balance and bring disease. And every article you seem to pop up in, in each of these as being a, you know, somebody who gets quoted. And, and so I just sort of, you know, had to find out who you were and what you're doing. And it sounds like you have, um, you are, you're the back guy as it turns out. Uh, and, and I, I, I just wanted to, get you on to talk about how how important bats are to our ecosystems and and then gener and generally and then specifically about wine but can you can you sort of lead us into your journey with bats and why they became important and fascinating to you oh wow okay that's a, a really good question let's just back up to my childhood and i was lucky enough to uh, grow along a, a creek, a wild creek that ran all year long. And I just, you know, learned to love nature as a kid. Um, this was in southern Santa Clara Valley in Northern California. And I had a few mentors, one of which was Larry Moitozo, who uh, was the director of Youth Science Institute. And before long, I just really enjoyed observing things. And it was much later that I, um, I mean, I, I became really interested in mammals through an Aaron Roost at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And then it was later than that, um, I heard a one-day talk and seminar by Brock Fenton from Toronto, Canada. And he was so inspiring that I just decided, you know what, that's it for me. I'm going to study bats. And this is after I ran a nonprofit for 16 years called Youth Science Institute. But I went ahead and, 
and got my PhD under uh, Brock Fenton, gosh, about, well, in 1992, I started the PhD program. So, you know, it's working on close to 40 years, I guess. Okay. Anyway, I have had a blast. I have had so <laughs> much fun doing this. I'm doing everything from teaching at universities to uh, uh, developing children's programs so that they know and understand how science works to giving talks all over the world. So, um, can you can you recall what it was in the talk that Brock gave, or the I think it was you mentioned a talk that really triggered you in terms of your fascination and and wanting to to dig in as a life pursuit i mean what what were the quali uh, several were things. qualities Sev of bats yeah, yeah. Go ahead. well several things all came together uh one of which was the diversity of bats so at the time uh he said that there are over 900 species of bats about a quarter of all mammals known as of Earlier this year, specifically January 27th, um, there were 1,456 recognized species in the world. And so every year uh, we find more species. And um, <laughs> I was down with uh, Nancy Simmons from the American Museum of Natural History and Brock Fenton, and we found a new yellow bat in the upper Amazon and Peru. This is just a couple of years ago. So, you know, it's part of it was the element of new frontiers discovery. Yeah. And then Brock was, you know, very enthusiastic, very generous. He offered us uh, copies of any of his slides. And in those days they were just, you know, transparency. So that was kind of a lot of trouble. And I was impressed with his uh, generosity and charisma. So I applied for a PhD program, and to my surprise, I was awarded a three-year scholarship, which I needed. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I just, I had a blast. It was, you know, the first, the first year, I won't say that I didn't work hard, but that first year as a PhD student, it was like being on vacation. I could just <laughs> sit, absorb all this information, and then play with data. Oh my goodness! I again, I just really had a great time. And one of <laughs> one of my highlights there was giving my defense, uh, where I had a I don't know a group of about thirty or forty people for my PhD defense, and it was very difficult to get everybody aboard, and mm. because of various examiners' uh, conflicts and and uh, time conflicts. And so um, for one uh, academic in the University of Toronto, which is about 45 minutes away, let's say, or 30 minutes if you're hurrying, um, Brock told her that a taxi would be waiting at the bottom of the lecture hall and she would be whisked up to our examination room at York University and lunch would be served. And so with, you know, a writing pen in one hand and a Coca-Cola in the other hand or a piece of pizza, I started uh, writing these um, mathematical models and 
He treated everybody with pizza. I mean, there were guys coming in with stacks of pizza and cases of Coca-Cola. <laughs> and I had a wonderful time. I had a blast. And at that point, you know, by the time you wrap up, you know that you know more about this than anyone else. And so, um, you know, you should feel very comfortable on stage. Right, right. That's amazing. That sounds so, <laughs> that's great. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm just fascinated by how many species of bats there are that you mentioned and more being discovered. Um, is that, do you think that untapped frontierness of, of, of bats has to do with them being nocturnal animals and just harder to research than other mammals? They are much more difficult and more expensive to study than other mammals. Mm. I'd have to say another frontier would probably be marine mammals, and for the same reasons, right. they're difficult to study and they're expensive to do so. Right. So the, the bat that I'm interested in looking at that occurs uh, along the you know, medium-high elevations here um, is virtually unknown. There's very little known about its natural history, and it's a pretty big bat. It's, yeah. it's as large as our largest in California. Huh. So wow. again, there's lots, lots to know. And we keep learning more about, you know, more about the natural world through bats in many cases. I mean, they're extremely long lived. They defy most of the so-called rules we have in, in biology about your size and your longevity. In general, the larger a mammal you are, the longer you're going to live. Witness humans and elephants and so on. Right. And shrews, which are very tiny, um, down to about two and a half grams for the pygmy shrew, or, uh, only live one or two years. The whole right. life cycle is just you know one or two years. There are bats... There is a single bat, the bumblebee bat of Thailand, is actually smaller than the smallest shrew. And so it is now the smallest mammal in the world. And yet it lives presumably many years. The longevity record for a bat is a Brant's uh, maudis of 41 years in the wild. Huh. And, and yet it's only a few grams. So huh. some of the... Uh, Folks at NASA and aerospace industry have always taken an interest in the fact that bats live a long time. Why is that, right? And then some of the right. longevity, the uh, biologists and, and uh, medical researchers who are involved in longevity are also very interested in trying to figure out, okay, why do bats live so much longer than other mammals the same size? Are there any hypotheses or any findings yet i would i don't know of any findings um okay so that's one of one the study. hypothesis is that it's because they go into torpor mm. but that doesn't really explain the fact that other there are many other mammals that also do the same many squirrels and so on do that and so uh this is mostly unanswered for Got sure it. well can you talk about some of the unique characteristics of, of bats generally? Or, you know, I mean, you could limit it to North American bats if you wanted, but I mean, examples from around the globe are also fun just to, I think, you know, whet well, everyone's let, appetite, but and my appetite, but yeah, yeah general. No, let's, let's, yeah, uh, yeah, let's do that. Let, but let's, 
I can just describe bats in general, something that yeah. all bats have in common. I think that's important. One, they are mammals, as I have mentioned several times. For some reason, a few people kind of think of them as, well, are those bird things that go at night? Well, no, they are true mammals. They have hair, they have mammary glands, and the females feed their young milk. Now, bats typically have only two mammary glands, and so they only have a single uh, young at a time, usually once a year. And twins do occur in a few species, but it's fairly rare. Normally sort of like it's humans. Just one bat. Yes. In <laughs> fact, a little bit like humans that way. Um, they are the only mammal that have powered flight. That is, they can fly and, and gain lift, whereas a few other mammals can glide like like some of the um, uh, tree shrews and squirrels and, and yeah. some of the early primates from Malaysia and that part of the world. But none of them have true flight. They can only glide. So right. that's very unique. And for a long time, there was an argument about whether um, bats had evolved from two different lineages, the megachiroptera or the flying foxes, and the microchiroptera, the, the smaller bats like we have in California. We have no flying foxes in the Americas, in California, North America, or South America. They're all part of the microchiroptera group. And I think now most people accept the fact that they're most likely from a single lineage, that, that flight and bats as we know them diverged into these two big groups, but they didn't evolve separately. And there are some interesting differences between the two that I won't, I can get into a few of them, but I don't want to get sidetracked here too much. But suffice to say that, you know, it's a remarkable group that is very old, about 60 million years, <clears throat> which is just after dinosaurs disappeared. Wow. Do they all use sonar for navigation or are there different... Oh, that's a great question. <clears throat> no. Um, most of the, my, nearly all the microchiroptera use echolocation. Echolocation. And... This isn't unique to bats. Uh, I mean, cetaceans seem to use it. I mean, humans maybe use it to a certain extent, you know, whether we know it or not. Can you talk about why that is... I mean, are there theories about why bats specifically use that I mean, are there other land mammals that are using echolocation? Uh, yes. You know, we could talk for days <laughs> about <laughs> okay. echolocation, and I would love doing that. There are a lot of very interesting um, kind of war games, if you are, or electronic uh, espionage and jamming and so on between moths and other insects and bats. But I know oh. we're not here today to talk about that. But very briefly, <laughs> what bats have done that other mammals have not done is that they've been able to very finely um, develop and take advantage of using their sonar. And to give you an idea of the detail that many bats can see, a big brown bat that is fairly common in California can detect a human hair from about 20 feet away. 
And so, I mean, imagine counting the hairs on somebody across the room in a classroom. Right. Now, that's something we cannot do, yeah. right, with our visual. And, and so I think a common misconception about sonar in bats is that, oh, yeah, it's this kind of general thing that, you know, lets you know there's an object out there, kind of like we think of radar. No, no, this <laughs> is in uh, detail that far exceeds, in some cases, our visual. Can Does that mean that they could... Detect and quickly eat things like mosquitoes, tiny little flying creatures. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about how this works. So, uh, when a, a bat uh, uses part of its larynx, just as we use our larynx to talk, they'll they'll make this high frequency sound from a part of their larynx, and it goes either through their mouth, like it does in a lot of our bats in California, or through their nose, like a lot of leaf nose bats here in Costa Rica. Mm. And it, it's a blast of very high energy sound that then a small part of which hits an object. And then that, that part that hits the object bounces back. Well, this is so intense that when a bat releases that sound, it disarticulates its ear bones. Imagine a smoke detector alarm one inch away from your ear. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and you have to do this, like, you know, a good part of the night, every night. I mean, we would go <laughs> deaf, right? It just wouldn't right. work. And mm. so they do this, and it's so fast. I and mean, we're talking a milliseconds of time here. So that each pulse, when each pulse of high energy goes out, those ear bones disarticulate simultaneously when the sound goes out. So the bat doesn't hear that. It hits the object, a little bit of that bounces back the part that hits the object then bounces back and the ear bones come back and the bat listens for that echo wow and so it was donald griffith who then coined the term echolocation right so pinniped or, or uh, cetaceans that is dolphins and porpoises and whales do have sonar it's an echolocating device but I think it's very crude compared to what bats do. And, and a lot of, we're now finding a lot of flowers that are ripe or provide the maximum amount of nectar simultaneously when their brack or their petals are shaped in a convex mirror, if you will. So when the, the bat sends its signal, it captures that and focuses it before it sends it back. And so the net effect is that when the bat's flying through a forest, like let's say here in Monteverde, and a certain uh, flower, like a banana, um, is ready to be pollinated, that brack will be in the perfect shape for uh, echolocating bat to have a reflection come back as a hot spot. Oh, and wow. that tells the bat, okay, that flower is ready to be pollinated. It's going to give me nectar. Right. So it's... And so now we're finding all these flowers that are doing this. Wow. It's so not it's... just one or two. This is, you know, fairly common. So, and these are, I'm imagining flowers that are blooming at night too. So they're, essentially they evolve together with the bat to respond to 
like a stimulus that, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just amazing Correct. to me. That, yeah. That's just incredible. Wow. It is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's amazing. So given some of these characteristics, what are some of the threats that bats face now in our modern world? Um, they are huge. I think one of the biggest, in California, I think one of the biggest threats to bats is urbanization, which is extremely pervasive and it's kind of tied into habitat conversion, habitat loss. Um, but now we have many, many things that are a problem for bats. And um, I, I wrote a book with colleagues uh, for our Caltrans transportation agency, and it's how to mitigate, that is how to um, replace habitat for bats and to lessen the impact when they're working on bridges, when bats have moved into bridges. But I have a chapter in there which just deals with the transportation-related impacts to bats. And, you know, it's quite, quite detailed. I mean, there's so many things that, that bats are faced with. One of the, another really huge issue right now, I think for a select group of bats, are wind turbines. Right, and, um, right. I was going to ask about that. So each one of these potential impacts may affect one group of bats uh, because of a certain part of their biology. It, it's one of the projects that I'm beginning to um, design here for Costa Rica, which has no oil. So they're building a lot of wind turbines here oh. and in other parts of Central America. And the open aerial foragers, like in California, primarily hoary bats and Mexican free-tailed bats, uh, are getting depleted. And, and it's just as these turbines get higher and higher, they are taking out larger and larger numbers of bats. And we need to you know, address the global climate change. We need to wean ourselves off of um, fossil fuels, but you know, it's a trade-off. And so many of us are trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to mitigate that, how to reduce the number of bat fatalities. But I'm very worried about a number of species because of wind turbine. And yeah. I think a lot of that is going down, going on down here. And these, you know, companies here have a hard enough time surviving without a lot of environmental protection. Although I have great hopes for Costa Rica because um, they have been on this campaign of reforestation and conservation like I've just never seen anywhere else in the world, particularly in Monteverde. It's, it's remarkable. But anyway, um, yeah, getting no, back to impacts, um, pesticides are a problem. Um, light pollution, noise pollution, uh, so many different uh, right. problems. And another one is uh, invasive species. Mm. And I had a graduate student look at she loved to backpack, so I had her look at any potential effects that trout, introduced trout might have on foraging bats in the high Sierra. And indeed, um, introduced trout definitely have a, an effect on foraging bats. So in this oh, case, how... it looks like it takes a lot longer for bats to forage over an area if they have trout 
Huh. So it takes a lot more energy. And so in the end, that means that their fecundity overall might go down, the, the ability to produce offspring. Right. Because they're going to have an extra tax. They're going to be charged more for their foraging, in effect. Right. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. And I, you know, pesticides certainly comes into play with vineyards if we're going to transition. But also, I think a lot of these other things can come into play in terms of just how we think holistically about, you know, agriculture and uh, our, our own way of, I, I mean, I think like the human, uh, human desires when it comes to night is to add more light to it and and also maybe a little more noise <laughs> and both of those things are uh not good for bats which is really interesting to think about well and, it's interesting adam I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you no please um it's interesting because uh not too long ago i read in a you know reputable uh natural history type magazine about what you could do for bats and the author said one of the things that you can do is put lights out because that will help the bats well my goodness yeah that bats are so diverse um one of the issues that i have with most mitigation is that too many people treat bats all the same way and and so i have pointed out in in talks when i'm addressing different agencies that are trying to do the right thing. And I explained to them, okay, well, it's true. Birds are all the same. I mean, after all, you know, an ostrich, a hummingbird, a swan, a golden eagle. Yeah, they do all the <laughs> same thing, right? Well, it's true for bats too. They are very, very different. And so they forage in different places. They roost in different places and they eat completely different things. So right. they get it. I mean, when I tell them that. And right. uh, so in terms of lighting, the most flexible of species, that is Mexican free-tailed bats and Yuma myotis, which, by the way, are both increasing in pop population numbers oh. uh, in, in the Western U.S., um, they do quite well with lights. They're attracted to lights. They doesn't seem to bother them that much, and they take advantage of it. I, there's a little light post in a provincial park in in uh, Ontario, Canada, that was pointed out to me. And the really really neat thing was that this little myotis, which I believe was a little brown bat or little brown myotis, uh, would come out at the end of the light fixture, fly around just maybe within a few feet of the light fixture, eat up a bunch of bugs, and then go back into its roost. And that was it. You know, so its foraging uh, range was like, you know, maybe nine square feet, period. That's all it needed, you know? Right. Uh, the unless high it needed a little water, and the water is nearby too. So, you know, it had it made. Everything was built in. But <laughs> okay, but that's for a few of these really flexible species. Uh, we have evidence, particularly from Europe, suggesting that many species are uh, they're uh, light phobic. That is, they they don't do well in light. Um, I'm pretty sure that's true for pallid bats, which is a remarkable bat that gleans prey off the off the uh, ground, off of leaves. It'll eat things like scorpions and centipedes, uh, ground beetles, and it'll also take an occasional 
dragonfly, or moth. And, and occasionally in Mexico, it'll even drink nectar from uh, agaves. So it's fairly eclectic in a lot of ways. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, long-term um, stability, the populations are winking out around urban areas. And I think it's a combination of noise and light. So right. because they spend a lot of time on the ground, they don't like light. And they come out much later than a lot of other species of bats. And it could be because they're slow flyers. They would be an easier prey item for some owls because they're not as fast. Mm. And again, they spend time on the ground. So you don't want to be obvious to your predator. Right. <laughs> and are owls the main predator of bats? Natural predator? I yes. Um, I don't think that they eat a lot of bats, but I have seen screech owls come up to a, a roost where there's a large number of bats. And they come from behind, so the bat is echolocating in front of it. Right. And so the owl will just, you know, come up and particularly if it's in a closed area, there's a roost in just south of uh, Carson City in Nevada uh, that has about 200,000 free-tailed bats. At least they did when I counted them about 10 years ago. And um, there is a uh, barn owl. Well, there are three, three raptors there that were all taking bats and they would just kind of come from behind and they would just eat till they were full. Well, right. out of 200,000, not a huge problem, but yes, they were a predator. <clears throat> One was a, a kestrel and the other was a, um, I, th I think it was a, could have been a prairie falcon. I, I know in Salinas Valley, there's, I've seen prairie falcons take bats from bridge too. So it happens, yeah. but normally they don't, in an open sky area it's it's where they hang out at a roost and they're waiting yeah. for bats to leave and then they come from behind so it's you know, it only within me of, a few feet of when they leave yeah it reminds me of like here in southern california we have these black phoebe birds oh yes and and when we had bees they would just hang out in front of the beehive <laughs> and they just yep. that's all they did all day was like yep when i get hungry i just swoop in grab a bee and then uh you know, munch it down until I get hungry again. And the, they yep. literally didn't have to go anywhere. They were just hanging out. Yeah. Um, so, well, let's talk about how uh, this translates to vineyards. Like how, what kind of bats do you, are, what, what kind of work have you done with vineyards? I know you've done some, you know, looking into this. And um, what can you tell us about how bats could benefit vineyards and how maybe we could benefit bats around our vineyards to to encourage them, to give them housing or, or anything to, to make their life, you know, more conducive for survival and happiness so that they'll hang out. Uh, presumably we want them around our vineyards. I mean, you can talk about that too, but please. Anything. Well, let's back up just a little bit. Yeah, uh, please. Adam. And, and I want to talk a little bit about what we do know about bats eating uh, pests in um, well, agricultural pests in general, but then more specifically in vineyards, and and then kind of wind up with the how can we make better habitats for bats. So, um, I saw a paper that was published in 2020. You may have seen it, but it was specifically about the value of bats in Chilean vineyards. 
Mm. And um, I was really impressed that just the fact that certain vineyards had bats, they increased their yield of wine grapes by 7%. And, wow. and yeah. when they did an uh, a, um, equivalent in U.S. dollars, it amounted to 188 to 248 dollars per hectare in in value in their wine grapes wow yeah you know and and they just looked at vineyards with grapes i, I mean they looked at uh, vineyards with bats right and vineyards yeah. that they had excluded the bats so they just you know put a big area and said okay we're not we're not gonna allow bats to come in here that sort of thing right um the ecological benefit of of bats in the U.S. is about, or the, the ecological economic value of having right. bats and the pest control that they do is estimated at about $22.9 billion a year. Fantastic. And among the many crops, cotton is a big winner. They, they have a lot of, and corn. Both those two crops, which are huge in the Midwest, right. in Texas, um, yeah, and California, yeah. for that matter, yeah. in the Central Valley. Yeah. You yeah. Know, th this is like billions of dollars worth of money saved by not having to put down insecticides and, and various pesticides. So agriculture in general really benefits. Uh, I think the story for vineyards is more complicated because many of your species are frankly just really too tiny for bats to worry too much about. And I had a number of uh, wine grape growers who were trying to get me to figure out how, how many uh, glass um, sharpshooters. Yeah, the glassy wing sharpshooter. Right, yeah. glassy wing sharpshooter. Uh, bats would eat. And, you know, I had to tell them, I said, frankly, probably none. Uh, imagine <laughs> someone offering you a donut hole from across the Los Angeles basin, you know, two hours away. And they say, ah, we got some free donut holes here. Come and get them. It's just like, no, you know, too expensive. You know, <laughs> not going to drive for that. And so it would be the same for a bat. You know, at some point, you know, the prize, the is just not enough to be worth the effort. Okay. And there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say that bats never eat mosquitoes, but they don't eat as many as some people think because you need to match the bat with the insect or the bat with the prey. And Got so it. getting back to um, vineyards and grapes, there are some species that are serious pests that bats do eat. Um, and in particular, um, this European grapevine moth that apparently was introduced. Now it's, it's from the Mediterranean, but it sounds like it's all over the world now. Oh, yeah. And I think bats will do a very good job of controlling that species because it's big enough. Yeah. There are some bats that specialize in moths. They're inordinately huh. good at eating moths. <laughs> in Southern California, uh, there are two that come to mind. One is a Western red bat. The other is a yellow bat. The yellow bat lives in palm trees, huh. almost exclusively in fan palm. And huh. its range is expanding because people like to plant 
palm, palm trees. <laughs> yeah, even though they're not native. Yeah. Even though they're not native. We have one, we have one native palm tree in California. Uh, you can see it in our deserts in Death Valley and so on. It's uh -huh. Washingtonia. But other than that, what you see in the LA basin is mostly a Guadalupe fan palm, you know, which has smaller right. leaves and they're easy to grow. Right. And they're attractive. So but that's why I say when you encourage the right kind of bat, um, then you can benefit that bat consuming large numbers of target species. Mm. Um, another, if, if you had a lot of problems with scorpions or, uh, you know, ground beetles, centipedes, things that, you know, you just, I know one, one uh, organic wine grower and, and um, vineyard up in Calistoga area has a lot of scorpions. Huh. And, um, you know, it's not like you can walk down the middle of a row and, you know, trip over scorpions. But if you go on the edges and lift up a board or, or a rock on their hillside, yeah, they have scorpions. It's remarkable. Okay. And so, you know, I... I let them know that, you know, this would be really good habitat for pallid bats. And as it turns out, they have a very viable population of pallid bats that presumably eat a lot of those scorpions. Huh. So, so I so suggested bats, ways that they could encourage more pallid bats. You know, okay. so that, again, each one of these bats is going to have a different natural history. For general, um, they're, they're, there's one bat in particular that is inordinately flexible. It lives in a lot of different situations. It's on the increase. And they do the most pest control management, and that's the Mexican free-tailed bat. Okay. So they're, that's one species that will take to a bat house um, okay. or a bat condominium. But do you know most any, of yeah. these other species do not. And... I'm kind of getting a little ahead of myself here because now we're talking about ways that you can enhance the, the habitat. But right. um, I want to keep talking about some of those pest species which you could target and which ones uh, you, you couldn't. So the really tiny ones like aphids or... Um, right, those are, yeah. You know, the grape orange, tortrix, a little tiny moth and then the western grape uh, vine skeletonizer uh, no bats aren't going to be effective on those but some of these other species um what about spotted like lanternfly pardon the spotted lanternfly uh maybe how big is it yeah i think it's i think it's a good size i mean it's a pretty juicy bug from what i understand okay so bats are going to eat that okay now, there, another element of this is um, what, where the insect is found. And I worked with some walnut growers up in uh, Tehama County, and they were interested in, you know, which bats could eat their husk fly. And in the end, I pointed out that there was a very specific bat that did a lot of gleaning, and it could, that's a species that if they promoted you know, it, it would definitely, it could take husk flies off the ground. And that's uh, what we call a, a long-eared myotis, myotis ebotis. 
Okay. And they like forest though. You know, they like some cover, but they'll right. come out. I've seen them even come out on lawns on the fringes of uh, suburban areas, gleaning all kinds of little bugs off lawns, even leaf hoppers. Hmm. So that's a species that will take fairly small things. It gleans off foliage, like the, uh, the grape leaf, wow. and, and it'll also uh, glean things right off the ground. But they like trees. Well, that's so, interesting. Um, so maybe maybe planting trees around your vineyard and or and or or having keeping trees around your vineyard having you know hedgerows and things like that would be beneficial for that kind of exactly. Species. So I'm going to mention one more that's uh, very flexible, and that's the Yuma myotis. They like water, but they eat a lot of small insects, and um, you know that might also be an option. They they are quick to take to a anthropogenic structure like a bat house. Mm -hmm. But in the end, they're probably not as effective as something like Mexican free-tailed bat, or I just mentioned the long-eared myotis. And the moth eaters, getting back to the moth eaters, you have yellow bat, um, western red bat, and hoary bat. And the hoary bats are migratory, but the western red bat, it's, it's not so migratory. It might have seasonal movements, but you know I've seen good populations of western red bats along creeks in this uh, suburban areas of San Diego. Uh, remarkably so, because normally we thought of that species as being tied to you know old growth riparian forests, but they're more flexible than that in some areas, and in particular uh, in the San Diego area. So a lot of these bats will do much better if you have just even a few trees. And and working with some of the uh, the wine growers in um, Napa Valley, I've tried to encourage them to just keep, uh, you know, that old valley oak because it provides a lot of roosting habitat so that the bats have a place to go during the day. And then... You know, for some species like a California myotis, they'll forage around the periphery of that, and then they'll also go over the vineyard. Right. I've seen, I had a graduate student look at habitats in Monterey County, and um, we went out one night to, you know, these enormous, enormous, vast spanses of monoculture grapes. And no, they didn't seem to be organic to me. Right. And they didn't have trees or anything, just as far as you could see, vineyards. And we watched bats emerge from a roost in the hills. They flew right over the vineyard, not eating anything. And we know that because we put bat detectors out on these vineyards mm-hmm. until they got to the Salinas River. Huh. And so, you know, there probably weren't many pests there. Right. But the bats weren't able to use that habitat. And so right. um, they pretty much just ignored it just as though it were some kind of, you know, pavement or something, or just like a big driveway, or, you know, a parking lot. Yeah. yeah, it was just like, wow. I mean, they're just, there are no feeding buses, nothing in those vineyards. Wow. But then we looked at some areas in uh, Tascadero, a little bit south of that in San Luis Obispo County, uh, to the east of Paso Robles, and 
we looked at situations where there were occasional big valley oaks that the vineyard owners had left and they i think they were trying to be organic and they actually had quite a few bats and pretty good diversity so my big point here is that if you can diversify your situation a little bit so that on the edges of your vineyard you have a hedgerow or if you have a creek allow trees to grow up allow you know put some put some cottonwoods in there if it's a warm climate um put trees in there that would you know normally occur along a riparian in in your region right and right. that will encourage bats and right. i much prefer that type of habitat enhancement as opposed to putting up a bat house because bat houses typically are not occupied even. Um, right. and when they are they're often occupied by the most flexible species that may or may not be doing what you want them to you know you're not going the moth eaters are mostly foliage roosters i mean Got it. in terms of the lazuring bats that is western red yellow and hoary bats roost in the foliage so it doesn't sound like it's as specific as uh, i have this kind of pest problem therefore i can you know encourage this kind of habitat to to ensure that i get this kind of bat that eats that pest is it or i mean how do you know if you have the kind of bats that would be beneficial to your problems in the area where you're farming well i shouldn't dissect this too much and i would say that generally um bats um are going to eat a lot of insects i mean they eat their weight every night like a lactating female is going to eat her weight every night that's remarkable i mean that is a lot of bugs right (laughs) yeah and so um some bats are more flexible than others but when i've worked specifically for you know a specific uh winery let's say then i've encouraged them when i've detected certain number certain kind of bat then I'd say, well, you need more of this, you know. There's one in eastern Napa Valley, I remember, that had, um, they had bats both in their barn and their tasting room. And they had several species. And they made a big deal about it. They, they kind of advertised that they had, you know, it was an organic wine and that they um, had this, you know, colony of bats that people could watch. And people were interested but I did encourage them to exclude the bats in the tasting room uh, and and use only the barn. And so in okay. the end, I think they used the outside of the winery building, but not the inside. You know, you, you okay. don't want to mix animals with, you know, your food production thing. <laughs> so, right? So I said, nah, this... you know, we just need to move them over a little bit. But they had the... some... They had Myotis evotis, which is this bat that gleans a lot of prey off the ground and off grapes, and it eats a lot of moths. So I said, wow, I mean, yeah, you're really lucky that you have Myotis evotis. And they're cute bats besides. They have these very long kind of black ears. Adorable. <laughs> well, it sounds Absolutely. like... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've seen little pictures of them. They are way cuter than the sort of scary Halloween image that is often portrayed of bats. They're often super adorable little cute things. 
Um, some of them look a little creepy, but some of these little ones are just kind of, they look like kittens almost with wings. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, now, you, like, I think that's a good point that you mentioned where it's like, you know, bats with food stuff sounds like the beginning of several scary contagion movies about pandemics that have come out recently <laughs> so i guess that that's a good point to make about keeping keeping them you know in the barn not hanging out where the food and and uh, food service is happening yeah this is common sense right 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 um so and i've I, I, well one quick couple little random questions i are there any bats that love japanese beetles for example like is there a way to encourage uh big brown bats bat? Big brown bats. Are they in the northeast, midwest area can, where these be- Japanese beetles can cause a lot of problem and defoliate vineyards and other crops? Uh, big brown bats are, um, you know, I won't say cosmopolitan, but they're um, found throughout North America and a good part of South America. So they're gotcha. extremely common in wilder areas and the folks in at UCLA um, asked me what I thought would be an appropriate species to monitor over a long period of time in terms of you know its viability and fecundity and and hanging on in a changing landscape one that is definitely urbanized right and I picked big brown bat Epteskis fuscus, because it's got a certain amount of flexibility, and so it can tolerate some levels of urbanization, but not hardcore urbanization. And I've seen even that bat just plain disappear in like the, let's say, the heart of Silicon Valley and um, San Francisco, Oakland, and other cities, so that even though you know, it seems pretty tolerant. It it has its limit, and for yeah. L.A., it doesn't. I don't believe it uh, occurs in the central part of the L.A. basin anymore. It's more on the periphery. You know, so um, it's because of a combination of things, I think. But um, that particular bat is a beetle specialist. Huh. Okay. Now, now, do you know? And and it's fairly common. Um, it will use bat houses, although, again, if you really want bats, you're far better off um, developing your natural habitat adjacent to the vineyard. And, you know, if the bats have a place to roost during the day, like let's say in your big oak tree or, or cottonwoods, and cottonwoods, by the way, grow fairly quickly, um, that, that will definitely encourage bats, and those bats will service an organic vineyard. Absolutely. Nice. That all sounds, yeah, like there's multiple benefits there if you're building more diverse ecosystems. Uh, the bats are, are a really great symptom of that diversity, a really great reflection of that. There are some people who are using certain species of bats as indicator species. Mm. And I and my students did this along Guadalupe River in Santa Clara Valley where we could show levels of um, habitat degradation. And what was interesting is that we found, uh, you know, some diversity of bats, a few species at the upper parts of the watershed. But as we went through the valley floor, uh, the habitat quality of the water just was 
awful, you know, very mm. low oxygen content, um, high particulate matter, and um, no bats. No bats were in those. And it looked like they had roosting opportunities. There's no food for them. Right. And as the river then got into the South Bay wetlands and, and became a part of San Francisco Bay, the bats started showing up again because huh. then that really awful degraded water had been diluted by the bay. And in fact, the bats out on the bay were eating a reticulated water boatman, not a very big insect, but plenty big for Yuma myotis. Right. And the, the Mexican free-tailed bats were eating the same. So apparently that insect that lives in brackish water was plentiful and, you know, bats took advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so much about the way that, you know, wetlands are seen as just obstacles to to modern life and often drained and, you know, built upon. And, and yet, yeah, it seems like this is a really good example of how valuable they can be to an ecosystem, to the ecology of all these interconnected things. Um, I, I heard one study uh, of somebody who put, I think, little radio locators on bats and they could see the bats at night. They could see their flight patterns. And I remember, maybe you've read this as well, about how they were watched the bats basically go up and down the rows of their vineyard, you know, go up one row, turn around, come back down the next row and just do that systematically every night sort of patrol the vineyard. Have, have you experienced anything like that? or? Well, seen... I do. Uh, I, I put a lot of radio tags on bats, and that's what we're going to do here in, in uh, Costa Rica for you know a couple of species. And now I can get, I'm, I've got a study where we put data loggers um, so that they'll tell you the exact location. Um, unfortunately, we have to, catch the bat again and then we download the data but i also have these very tiny very powerful transmitters that will last a whole year and right. we can put them on small bats too which is really exciting wow. um to look at actual individual behavior like you're talking about we put leds on hmm. and again i've been doing that for a long long time i oh, have so you a, can just... a friend who makes them up for me and they have different patterns, so I can separate out uh, individuals. And so they, so can, they have different, you know, blinks. Oh, you can also oh, so get you... different colors. But as soon as you get a different color, then the chemistry of the LED is actually quite different. You're using different metals to do that. Um, yes, and I've heard that. I haven't, I haven't really done any formal studies in vineyards of bats foraging. But I know people who have put transmitters on bats and watch them, you know, go up a row and then down another row. And that's kind of what I would expect. Yeah. So in Hawaii, I have spent a lot of time observing foraging behavior in the Hawaiian hoary bat because it's an endangered species and it's very vulnerable to the wind turbines there. But I've watched mm -hmm. these bats go into a canyon or a gulch Sometimes the gulch isn't even very deep, but it has a lot of native species in it. And that bat will troll back and forth till the rate of return has dropped. And it's no longer profitable for the bat to keep foraging. And then huh. it'll skip over to the next gulch. And so right. a bat will do the same thing in a vineyard. 
Right. You know, it'll go down in between two rows, getting the easy, low-hanging fruit, if you will, or in this case, the easy-to-catch <laughs> insects, right. until the rest aren't as easy or they're just too small to be bothered with. And then it hops right. over to the next row. Right. And I've seen this in even um, another example of what's going on are uh, photovoltaic panels in a big solar project. Uh, bats will go behind them because insects often congregate. And if you have, like, let's say you have a vineyard that has rows that are cross to the wind so that they're perpendicular to the direction of the wind, causing a lee of the wind at the, at the back edge of each of these rows, that's where the bats will tend to fly because, you know, bats are, when it's windy, Bats are going to, I mean, insects are going to be in that lee of the wind so that they're not just blown away. They can go about what they need to do. And bats take advantage of it. Right. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Another good reason to have, you know, trees and hedgerows, windbreaks and things like that around your vineyard. Yeah, absolutely. And if you plant, if you, if you have a prevailing wind, um, then you'll want to plant that hedgerow if, if you're just configuring it for the first time. You want to plant that hedgerow so that it's perpendicular to, let's say, a prevailing wind. Right, right. Like in Sonoma County, it's just always northwest. And most of Northern <laughs> California, it's always northwest. I know in Southern California, mm-hmm. it's different because in the summer, we get these desert winds, you know, which are like different. But anyway, people usually know where the wind comes from. <laughs> well, it sounds like a diverse ecosystem is is generally a good thing that's free from pesticides and has a you know different layers to it uh, in terms of not all one level where you have uh, you know where you have forest and woods and uh, all different kinds of that kind of like a like a multi-story diverse ecosystem sounds like a really beneficial thing to to for bats in general and and their benefits to the to whatever it is that we're growing specifically absolutely you know uh any time that you convert your land into you know this very intense monoculture um it'll work and you'll get a high yield and it's (laughs) short-lived because it's just not going to last the long term you're going to you know, essentially burn out your soil or use it up. So it's just like some kind of substrate, but not nutritious. And, you know, when you get pests, they're going to be very intense. And because you will have made this opportunity that is just um, ripe for, you know, some kind of new invasion of new, new pest or new insect, and it'll, you know, explode, if you will. Right. So I think what, what's kind of interesting here in Monteverde and this part of um, Costa Rica, certainly, is that people kind of learned that the hard way. Mm. And 40 years ago, there was a lot of clear space and it was mostly dairy land and people just cleared the forest. And now I see sustainable farming and sustainable gardens. And, you know, it's... There's a lot of second growth here, but they're trying to do it with native plants. And 
they still have a dairy industry here. They still have these other um, agricultural crops, but it's more integrated with the surrounding habitat. Yeah. So really, it's it's really interesting. Yeah. So I see coffee. Um, you know, it's it's coffee is kind of like you know shaggy vineyards, if you will. I mean, they're yeah they're little trees. Um, but I see some very successful coffee farms where they've allowed big trees. They've allowed some shade, and you know they're learning the nuances of coffee grown in the different kind of uh, uh, terrera of their of their soil right so right kind of neat yeah i love that um well any closing thoughts i really appreciate everything that you've shared so far is there anything we haven't covered or just any closing thoughts that you'd like to add well um i'll I'll just mention that there are a number of myths out there that oh yeah are going to be hard to die uh one is that you know bats all bats have rabies Bats don't have any more incidence of rabies than other populations of mammals. And uh, if a bat gets rabies, it dies. It doesn't just keep rabies forever and keep infecting people like, you know, some people think. So you should never pick up a a wild animal of any kind uh, because of the potential hazards and, and dangers. So, and that goes along with the live bat too if you see a live bat chances are it may be sick because you know bats don't want to be picked up on the ground in the middle of the day and so on so probably best to call a bat biologist or call the health department if you see a bat that's just you know grounded or something like that but i would be don't don't use your hands to pick up any wild animal another little misconception i'm going to mention is because the covid 19 and, um, you know, this pandemic has focused a lot on bats, and it's true, bats have a lot of viruses. But the reality is that virologists have um, looked at bats because they can go into a foreign country, collect a lot of bats, and usually resource agencies in foreign countries don't mind if they take a few thousand bats. And so they've mined these uh, bats for viruses. In the end, they've surveyed many, many, many species. Don't forget, we have over 1,400 species of bats. And so if you look at the number of viruses with the number of species of bats they're coming from, and the number of viruses coming from wildlife of other species, the incidence of viruses in bats is no greater. It's about the same. Got it. So I just want to mention that. And to date, no bat has ever been found with the uh, um, SARS-CoV-2 virus. And Got it's it. evolved. But the important message there is that we should um, be, be mindful of invading, you know, wild spaces in terms of development. You know, it's mm. the human wild interaction that could be a problem, the bushmeat and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to, um, you know, figuring out how to allow a a bat population that, let's say, is already occurring in the area, like, like the LA Basin or Central Valley, 
um, I think there is a really good way where you can have wildlife and agriculture and people living all in the same area. And yes, it's important to have little barriers. You don't want bats roosting in your tasting room. But having them in a barn or an area that's not inhabited by people, um, better yet, in a tree in wild spaces adjacent to the actual vineyard, I think is the way we need to move forward. Mm. And for sustainable long-term agriculture, I've seen some great examples of that here in Costa Rica. And I really like some of the trend that I'm seeing in California. You know, people are, are learning that they can live with a little less yield, but a longer, more stable uh, farm. Yeah, that's great. So are you saying that not all bats are vampires? Uh, well, yeah, no, I, I, some people actually think that bats, you know, lots of bats drink your blood and you know, that's a whole nother story, of course, Adam, but, um, right. they, vampires, um, have increased in Latin America because forests have been cleared and we introduce cows and horses and then that disrupts the habitat here. And so. Um, you know, you usually do get vampires in areas where you have a lot of cattle growing. Whereas in a natural forest that's intact, there are very few vampires. You know, they don't yeah. have a ready food supply like they do on a, on a uh, big cattle ranch. So it's interesting. Some of those same processes uh, occur here where you get a species that I'd have to say is pretty weedy, and I'm referring to the the vampire bat and uh yep out of balance and you got problem what yep. can i say yep <laughs> now is the vampire bat is a is a single species i mean is it more than how many species of vampire there are three bats species of vampires so it's not a huge number in the no. out of 1400 no and, it's very small they're extremely specialized and so i mean they are interesting animals and they're um, pretty tough. I tend not to like them down here because uh, when, let's say, an area is cleared for cattle, then vampires start increasing in number and they displace some of the more sensitive bat species that occur in the local caves and grottos. Got it. Got and it. so, you know, in, in these small caves, that you know i used to see a half a dozen other species and no vampires now i just see vampires maybe one other species but maybe not so. got it well that's fun yeah I, I was totally kidding but it is i i'm fascinated by them as well i mean it just seems like they're oh they're a... remarkable animals yeah. don't get yeah. me wrong i mean they can sense um the heat the the um extra amount of heat generated by a blood vessel getting close to your skin, much like uh, the Jacobson's ladder in a pit viper that can detect heat. Essentially, you know, an infrared means of sensing something. And so, you know, the, the bat will crawl, maybe drop on the ground, then crawl up the foot of, let's say, a cow. And then it it just makes very, very tiny cut marks. And they're so small, thin, that usually the horse or the bat, I mean, the uh, 
cow doesn't really notice too much. And I've seen this, I saw this one time on a chicken, a different kind of vampire, but a vampire that specializes on birds. Uh And the chicken just lifted up a foot and then set it down and didn't seem to bother it. The chicken was sleeping in a tree at night. And the vampire just made its uh, little slits and then the blood started trickling out. I didn't see this because it's too far away, but I know that's what happens. And so then the vampire just simply licks the little trickle of blood that's coming down. While the vampire licks the cut, there's an anticoagulant in the saliva. And so the blood (laughs) keeps trickling down. And again, it's just a tiny little trickle, but it's enough for the bat to make a, a meal out of it for the night and um and then flies away and like we just watched this chicken and it just sort of lifted its leg up and then it just sort of settled down and almost kind of you know the feathers just went over the bat and it's just like oh my gosh (laughs) you know like totally tolerant of this bat you know licking his blood (laughs) and just kind of going back to sleep you know the eyes went open once and then they just sort of shut on the chicken and that was like crazy Wow. And then um and then the bat we saw the bat fly away and the chicken didn't it didn't flinch. Nothing, you know. But anyway, wow. um a very interesting story about altruism and vampire bats is that when they go back to their roost and particularly uh, of closely related bats, if a bat didn't find a meal that night, it will beg from one of its kin, let's say an aunt or mother or grandmother or something like uh-huh. that. And then the recipient of the, of the uh, motion or the begging uh-huh. will then cough up half of her meal wow. in a little plate in it. And then the other, the other bat that didn't get a meal will eat that. Wow. Remarkable. Yeah. But certainly it's, you know, we'd have to look at that as a form of altruism where, you know, it's evolved because presumably the bat who gives up half her meal then might be able to expect the same for her down the road. Right, right. Hmm. I love that. So they're very interesting. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I just don't (laughs) like them ecologically. Right, right. They're... Sounds like they push out other. other yeah, they do. Smaller. Like, <laughs> uh, well, any other fun elements that you want to share, or, or anything? I mean, did we dispel the myths? Uh, any anything else? To well, wrap I would up? just yeah. like to encourage all your growers out there and and um, lovers of of good wines and particularly organic wines to um, continue learning how we can do this because. You know, the closer we are to growing things without a lot of petrochemicals, uh, I think, you know, the better we're going to be. We're going to live longer in the end and uh, hopefully have better lives. It's interesting, Adam, very close to me here is one of the five blue zones of the world. And I don't know if you're familiar with blue zones. One of them is Loma Linda in California, but this is where an inordinately large number of persons live very long lives. Oh. And there's a 
there's only five blue zones in the world. Mm. I think that's true in Loma Linda, at least. So I have read that they are, for the most part, vegetarians, and they don't drink or smoke very much. Uh-huh. But I think another part of this is just being active. And more than diet, um, one of the most important things is to just exercise. But the people here in Guanacosta and the Nicoya Peninsula, which we're just adjacent to, live very, very long lives. I mean, they're my Spanish teacher's grandmother is 104, and she's just bright as a tack. And she huh. goes about sweeping her little porch every day. And she, you know, just like, oh my God, this woman is 104 years old. Wow. So All there's right. something to be said to going organic. <laughs> well, well said, well said. Um, well, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing all this knowledge. It's I'm super fascinated. I'm just like totally charmed by these creatures and what they have to share with us. And I really appreciate you being their spokesperson today and having this conversation with me. I really, it's been great to learn all this stuff. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Adam. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you did and would like to support this podcast, please do. There is a Patreon link in the show notes where you can subscribe with a monthly, very low subscription to add monetary support. Or please subscribe on your feed, whatever, wherever you listen to this podcast, subscribe and follow this podcast so that you will automatically download it when each new episode comes out. That's one of the few metrics that we can measure to see the support and and listenership of this and otherwise if you're already listening subscribe support whatever uh just long time listener haven't done anything please uh do a review if you would any positive review with five stars and a nice word <laughs> is fantastic and helpful and uh really improves the algorithmic performance of this podcast so thank you so much <laughs>